Okay, so a few years back, uh, Sam took me to the uh, um, concert of a very famous drummer. He's a session drummer. Uh, he's called Steve Gadd. Um, I'd never heard of him before, but when I mentioned him to a couple of friends, they were like, oh, yeah, he's awesome. I know all about him. So he's played with Frank Sinatra, the Bee Gees, Eric Clapton, Diana Ross, and uh, Roberta Flack. Um, so lots of uh, uh, sort of A-list uh, uh, musicians. And we went down, and you go down into a basement, and the lights are dimmed, and then you have, like, the crowd around him. And uh, we all hushed as these musicians took the stage. And the uh, uh, first couple of tracks, they were they were really they were really good and moving. There was melody and uh, 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 music in the air, but we didn't know it yet. But there was something better to come. You suddenly the other musicians around him eased off. They put down their uh, guitars and flutes and basses, and suddenly this drummer suddenly he seemed to grow he wasn't actually growing but he seemed to grow because this legendary drummer was going to take the stage and then suddenly he did a solo i don't know if you've ever heard a solo by accomplished musician someone that suddenly just grows to take over the entire room the drum set seemed to uh, 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 grow in size and increase with all the different things on it and this skilled drummer suddenly gave us a performance, not a calm, beautiful performance that went along with the tunes, but it was this drummer unleashed. Suddenly, he unleashed all his power and dexterity and prowess. Everything he'd learned over a lifetime of learning to drum was suddenly unleashed unto these poor drums that were battered to in an inch of the life. His hands were like a blur as they spun the drumsticks onto the cymbals and uh, the various instruments of percussion. The cymbals were crashed, swept poured off his face. You could see this guy was going for it. And the room reverberated and this guy beat this drumstick as hard as he could and to the uh, uh, most melody that he could. And it was absolutely glorious. We thought in those first few tracks that we knew who this drummer was. We thought in those first few tracks that we knew how well and accomplished he could play. And then we realized we'd seen nothing yet. He was to unleash the full force of his skill in that drum solo, and it was dazzling to watch. And when he'd finished, there was just this rapturous applause, and people were standing because they were just uh, overwhelmed by uh, the, the, the full force of his skill. And today, this morning, we're going to read of God's first drum solo in this account. We have seen six plagues ravage Egypt. We have seen him devastate people with all sorts of calamities. But then, on plague seven, things change again. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 9. And if you haven't got a Bible, we've got some nice ones at the back for your use. It says this in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up 
early in the morning and confronts Pharaoh. We remember this ambush technique from previous accounts. And say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. Everyone say go. Go. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. Everyone say force. Force. And against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. Everyone say no one. Um, in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You uh, still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen in Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock in, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. And we have here a gear change. This is another level. We've had frogs and lice, we've had flies and boils, and they've been uncomfortable and awkward and even horrible. But now, God unleashes his full force. And when God unleashes his full force, there is no one that can stand. And so the entire landscape, the Nile Delta, is lit up by electric discharges in the sky. Lightning crashes and thunder rolls around the land. And rain falls and we hear that massive chunks of ice fall from the storm clouds and brutally batter not just the vegetation but any living thing exposed to it. It is a a, a grim plague that they face. And it seems finally we get the fear in these people. The population at last starts to realise who the God they are denying and confronting is because you see for the very first time people start dying. We haven't had death yet. You would have thought after all these six plagues that you would have had death but God had stayed his hand and now on the seventh plague he unleashes uh, the full extent of his wrath on Egypt. Make no mistake, God had unleashed judgment, but it had been with a, uh, a hint of grace and mercy. But now he does it without any restraint or moderation. But I want you to hear something. I don't know whether you've noticed it. I hadn't noticed it uh, uh, when I'd read it through before. But there is something wonderful in this text that we should uh, uh, find comfort from. 
there is a degree of restraint and moderation up to this point. We've had six plagues where God has reserved his strength. And it is only on the seventh when they are truly uh, deaf and blind to his call that God unleashes something of this significance. The truth is that God knows that receptive hearts will hear him without massive demonstrations of glory, without fireworks uh, and noise. His full force, the bigness of his glory is reserved to the resistant, the stiff-necked, to the obdurate, the people that don't want to hear from God. He reserves the biggest signs for them. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. It says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. And the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. You would have thought that was a wonderful thing to do. But the guy only, listen to this, only suffered from a withered hand. It wasn't a life and death thing. And the Pharisees thought that Jesus should have kept the law. The Pharisees are not a good bunch of people. They are shorthand for the very worst religious types. And so the Pharisees went out and they plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him. And what did he do? I love this. And he healed all who were ill. The Pharisees are spitting feathers because he healed someone just of a withered hand. And then all these others come to him and he heals and he heals and he touches. And Jesus warned them not to tell others about him. Can you hear the quietness of this kingdom coming? And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah would speak prophetically about this Messiah coming and he says here is my servant whom I have chosen the one whom I love in whom I delight I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations he will not quarrel or cry out no one will hear his voice in the streets and listen to this tender gentle verse a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice true to victory in his name. The nations will put their hope. Instead of challenging the Pharisees, instead of taking the battle to them, instead of doing a miracle that would take the Pharisees' breath away, Jesus hides away he moves away from the conflict and those that know that this is someone special they follow him and they hear him and they have this moment of private audience with Jesus and to illustrate this uh, Matthew reminds us of this prophet prophecy in Isaiah that this is who Jesus is. I wonder who your Jesus is, who you think of, perhaps when you take the bread and the wine. Who is this Jesus that you think of? Perhaps he's just an historical figure. Perhaps he's an invention uh, of our minds. But uh, Matthew tells us who this Jesus is. He is a caring and serving Messiah 
who tenderly ministers to the struggling and the confused. If you think you're in control, if you think you're good enough, if you are proud of your accomplishments, then Jesus has very little to say to you. But if you are that bruised reed, you know, one more strong wind in life and you think you're going to break. If you are a smoldering wick that, uh, you know, you just need uh, uh, some worse thing to happen and you think it's all going to be over, that is who Jesus chooses to minister to. That is who Jesus seeks out. This morning, I think, we are being invited to a saviour who longs not to overwhelm you with power and lightning and thunder, doesn't want to crush your enemies with hailstones. But he wants to come to you because he knows your name. He knows your deepest thoughts. He knows your most profound struggles. He knows the things you're worried about that you do not even say out loud. And so this morning, I want you to forget the fireworks. I want you to forget the big meetings and the loud preachers, the impressive ministries and the extraordinary buildings. I want you to forget the loud worship with a thousand speakers and Christian drummers whose solos are amazing. I want you to forget the smoke machines and the uh, impeccable media teams. I want you to forget the dramatic prophecies and the extraordinary signs and wonders. I invite you to come and meet a Jesus who would meet you face to face and tenderly minister to you as a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. Because it is your relationship with Jesus that will get you through tragedy. It is your relationship with this Jesus that will get you, dare I say it, through the mundanity of life. The things that you have to do day in, day out. Uh, I'm not a great washer of clothes, but there's something disheartening about each and every day seeing the accumulation of children's school uniforms in our uh, clothes bin and knowing that that is just going to go on for years and years. And you need a saviour who knows your heart. You need a saviour who is tender and listens. You need a saviour who you talk to about these things. We are invited this morning to realise our greatest refreshment is being alone with our Saviour. Being alone with the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Our greatest refreshment can be our moment of quiet with him. Because when no one else is around, because when we're not distracted by PA systems and projected videos, when we're not distracted by squabbling kids or, uh, or um, the dynamics of adults, when we're in that privacy with Jesus, there is refreshment that will last you the rest of your life. Because he would look you in the eyes. He would hold both your hands. And he would tell you, what you need is me. What you need is Jesus. We can think we need so many things. Everything, um, all the different pressures of life. And Jesus looks at us this morning and says, 
What you need is me. Are you stressed? Are you worried? Are you at your wit's end? Well, I suggest to you this morning, put down the screen. Shrug off the weight of the world. Find solitude and take up his word and read it quietly. Find an intimacy with Jesus that he invites you to take this morning. I wonder if our convictions are shallow. You know, we say we believe something, but it doesn't take much to knock us off. Is our faith absent outside Sundays? Uh, is our spiritual activity relegated to a couple of hours on the first day of the week? Do you act in meetings? Are you here with a church face and a smile that is as shallow as anything? Is God silent? Do you hear his voice in your daily lives? There is an invitation, I think, to remind, you, to remind ourselves that God would not send thunder and lightning. He would reserve his full force to people um, that just ignore him. But to we who are sensitive to our weakness, to us who are aware of who Jesus is, this morning there's an invite to stop doing, stop working, stop striving, find rest. One of the Ten Commandments is take a day off and rest. Rest in God's presence. Rest in silence. How good are we at being still in silence? Or do we need something on? Do we need the TV or the radio or people talking? Can we rest in God's presence in silence? Can we come to him with our prayers? Can we articulate what's on our heart? We don't even have to pray what we think we should pray. We can come with the honest requests of our heart. Do we come with music? Whether it's a song that we can sing ourselves or uh, uh, something off uh, the internet or, or uh, if we're old, cassettes and CDs. But there's that moment of music and just dwelling in the presence of God and speaking in tongues. God is of the public and he will go out and he will demonstrate and uh, he has told us to have public meetings but there is a privacy and an intimacy that we are each called to have with Jesus where it is him and us, where it is tender and direct, where he specifically speaks to our issues and struggles and problems. If you have these, come to him. Come to him directly. Come to him one on one. Enjoy his company. Learn that he is your greatest resource. He is your shelter. He is your champion. And so, as the seventh plague is announced, as God promises to unleash his full force, there is this very interesting little uh, 
added bit to the text because we find that there is an invitation to shelter. God is going to send a plague and it is going to ravage the land. God is rolling up his sleeves and he's going to do something in Egypt so terrible that it has never been seen before. But even in that unleashing of God's full force, there is undeserved grace. The Egyptians are cold-blooded slave drivers. They are a wretched people that uh, visit abominations on Israel. There is, uh, uh, they are not a good people. There is nothing to merit them to anyone. But God knows that with all their arrogance and pride, they can't stand before his strength. They won't be able to withstand his full force. And so he offers them the opportunity to take shelter. These despicable Egyptians who uh, uh, the Israelites want to escape, who have uh, enslaved the Jewish folk, they are given a moment to shelter, to escape. And so as the big black clouds roll over the Nile, those who exploit Israel are given the opportunity to run for cover. And so the giant balls of ice fall down and they kill the wild animals and they ruin the crops, but the human lives is giving an escape. But the Egyptians are given the opportunity to shelter from the storm. Now, quite rightly, on a, on a Sunday morning and during the week, we emphasise the importance of a disciplined behaviour. We emphasise the need of love and care and compassion to look out for each other. This is not a performance. We are a community who is supposed to know how each other are doing. And we are all supposed, um, as well, to live uh, according to the rules that God places on our heart. And we celebrate, quite rightly, those who give and serve. And we challenge selfish and immoral behaviour and say, that has no place in the church of God. And quite rightly, these are values that we champion. But I want us to remind ourselves of the shelter from the storm. We must never allow this uh, morality that we love, of the Holy Spirit that causes particular actions to be out of bounds. May our morality and ethics, may they never obscure God's relentless love. It isn't bound, thank God, by our inadequacy and rebellion. God's love isn't conditional on how good you've been. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. It says this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. 
we can read that as a tax collector. You know someone that works for HMRC? You know, that, that surely that's not too bad a thing. But this tax collector in this tip, he is a traitor. He is a traitor. He is complicit with the Roman authorities in exploiting Jews. He is someone that's almost denied his Jewishness so that he can uh, extort money from his own people. I wonder what you think the uh, punishment should be for a traitor. What should it be for someone that betrays their country? How do you feel about someone that uh, sells out a nation for his own personal benefit? We know what the papers say, don't we, about traitors. They love to uh, uh, expose them and uh, uh, prove their guilt. But Jesus calls a traitor in. And then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd, a large crowd of traitors. Can you imagine how bad a group of people that would be. I don't know who you like hanging out with, uh, but traitors don't tend to be my favourite uh, enclave of people. But we have a large group of people now that have betrayed their country, that have sold out their people, that said, I would rather get money than help my kin and kith. And so a large crowd of tax collectors and others, and you know the others aren't going to be any better. They may not have been tax collectors, but what's the betting? These others were pretty grim fellows who, uh, who extorted their own people, who sold arms to the wrong type of folk, who did all sorts of dastardly things. And so we have a large crowd of people that the Daily Mail would call for their hanging at the slightest chance. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complain to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you prepared to be entertained by people who have betrayed the faith, who have betrayed your people, who have betrayed the very history of God's activity? And you can imagine the disciples not knowing quite what to say. And Jesus answered them, butted in probably with a little fire in his eyes at these outrageous, self-righteous people. And Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus doesn't just talk to the worst type of people in society, to the ones that have betrayed every value that they have been taught so that they can extort their people for money. He eats with them, this moment of intimacy. He takes and eats and breaks bread with them. And one of them becomes his closest friend, a traitor. This is not a good start for a discipleship course. This is scandalous. I can't 
uh, run out of words to express how outrageous this selection of Jesus of Matthew is. And at the end we have this confrontational statement that we all need to hear very clearly. The Messiah, Jesus, our Saviour, he is not interested if you think you've had it all together. If you come in this morning and you sort of hold your head out high saying, well, Kevin, my quiet time's extraordinary. I have read through the Bible in six months. Uh, I speak in tongues and uh, uh, pray uh, for all the different countries uh, in, a, um, in a, a, a tight routine. That um, my prayer life is extraordinary. And Jesus says, yeah, I've not come to save you and your discipline. I've not come to save you and your self-righteousness. I've not come to save you and your pride. You're already good enough. You can just get on with it. Jesus longs to bring his presence and purpose to those that go, yeah, I've lost my way. Again, I've been doing this life for a long time and I've blown it again. I don't know how you feel this morning. But I want to encourage you that if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling sick, if you're feeling uh, uh, that you've made another misstep, that there are things in this week that have happened that you really hope don't come out, then Jesus says, yes, me and you can work together. We can do things. I have come for exactly you. I never want us to imagine our self-control and our religion sheltered us from the storm. Your goodness at praying or reading the Bible or coming to church or giving or anything else does not shelter you from the storm. We cannot bear the full force of uh, uh, God's wrath. We need every single one of us, his generous and abundant grace. We are in much as need of shelter as those Egyptians, as those hell stones fell. And secondly, and finally, as I end, let's not ask for other people to get what they deserve. There's all sorts of people in our lives who wind us up or get us properly angry. You know, like they betray us. They betray some really important values. They do apparently unforgivable things. And it's very easy to ask, God, give them what they deserve. But we couldn't handle it, and neither can they. We are to ask for grace and forgiveness for everyone. There is some pretty grim things happening out in the world. But we have a saviour who is bigger than them all. And we have a call that is bigger than any particular event that's reverberating around the world. And we need to be a people that hold on to grace and love above all else there is no other way there is no other victory there is no other way to survive without holding on to grace and love and mercy we could not survive 
without grace, love and mercy and neither can anyone else. And so I want to finish today by encouraging us to live as the hands and feet of Jesus that delights in being gentle, in being forgiving, especially to the messed up, especially to the traitor, especially to the person whose actions are so scandalous it takes our breath away. And Jesus says, yes, you get to be kind because I was kind to you. Please close your eyes, bow your heads. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you long to deal with us individually, that you know the number of hairs on our heads, that you know us by name, and that you would relate to us directly and personally and privately. Lord God, I pray that we would relish and choose to sit down with you that we would choose you over all the other competing interests that demand our time and energy. Lord God, we wonder sometimes why we are so stressed and out of sorts and we need to be reminded that we need to spend time with the Holy Spirit. And Lord God, we thank you for this message of grace. It is outrageous to so many people. The religious and the moral and the self-righteous look at these things and say that is too high a price to pay. But Lord God, it is because of what you did on that cross that you took something that we could never bear that we are able to enter into your presence this morning. Lord God, I pray as we go out from here that we would be gracious, that we would be merciful, that we would be forgiving. Because, Lord, that is a hallmark of your kingdom. And that, those attitudes are the only things uh, that there's space for in eternity. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.